Hey everyone. So today's podcast is going to be a little bit different than the usual episode. Instead of going at it solo, I have my friend Matthew Smith here, and he's uh, he's he's pretty interesting. I like him a lot. He's one of my close friends, actually. And um, so basically, this is an interview that he was doing for his podcast, and he calls it the Bike Cast. So what we what I'm doing here is just kind of uploading that conversation that we had because I think it turned out pretty interesting. I think you guys will enjoy it. And I guess that is mostly it. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, and welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. I'm recording now, so you may start. Hey, Gage. Hello, uh, Matt. Gage is a psychopharmacology researcher, independent scientist, blogger. Some of you may know him. He's His reputation precedes him. So, hey, Gage. How are you doing today? Hello, Matt. What's up? Um, I'm doing pretty good. I, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Can't complain. So, uh, for people who don't know you, um, could you describe sort of your history with psychopharmacology and like, how did you get into this? How did you get like, how did this become your intellectual thing? That story is kind of weird. Um, basically, I'm trying to think, I guess I might as well just get into the weird stuff so well it initially started when i was younger and had different kinds of symptoms and i was prescribed different medications for adhd and depression and um so i basically i ended up kind of having a lot of weird symptoms while I was on these medications, like sometimes I would hallucinate, uh, sometimes, mm, I don't know, there was just like a crazy amount of things going on, and sometimes I thought I was dying or something, so I would start researching like that, and that was like probably like 12 years ago or something, I don't know how long ago, but, um... And then the more I got into it, I started like getting uh, really into health stuff. And I was also trying to kind of cure my uh, kind my kind of schizotypal type symptoms. Um, like I would uh-huh. paranoia, hallucinations, um, but not that many hallucinations. They weren't that crazy, but... Uh, I don't know. So 
So I would try to cure my depression, my hopelessness, my everything else through uh, exploring what might cause them. And then I started to try every single kind of chemical. <laughs> so right, <laughs> that is kind of where it got more interesting, probably. Um, right. The quest is on for the receptor gold, you know? Yeah. And then the goal kind of changed to once I, once that happened, one, pr pretty much once I tried uh, dextromethorphan, I was so mind blown that I decided to, uh, that I wanted to try every, to try to mess with every single receptor that I right. could. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of funny for you know it's like oh DXM got me into uh, psychopharmacology, but hey, yeah, like especially there was this document called the uh, it was by William White the DXM FAQ. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've heard yeah. of that. Yep. Oh, it's fantastic. Plateaus and all that, yeah. Yeah, it gets like so in depth with all the different effects. Um, and I. Yeah, that was definitely a fascinating document to run into early on when you're just like, well, I'm a teenager. Let me try some legal drugs. I mean, that, and you run into that thing, it's like, good God. Yeah, totally. I, I think it's, it's underestimated even as something to be used in understanding, I guess, phenomenology or whatever it's called when you study mm -hmm. people's perception and subjective experience. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I kind of went and tried like 90, about 95 different drugs so far. Mm -hmm. And um, the, uh, I don't know, I found things that worked. And now it's not so much focused on trying to like cure myself or anything. But now I'm trying to understand what stuff like psychedelics do because they already have such profoundly weird effects. Yeah. Truly. So you just became like sort of obsessed with these different, completely different ontological spaces that were just so close by normal neurochemistry. Kind of, yeah. I had phases of getting into uh nootropics that was like kind of the hugest thing probably yeah um, nootropics world was wild a few years ago right yeah it's probably gonna get bigger again i don't know though um i also got really mm, i don't know well ask a different question i don't know <laughs> <laughs> for sure for sure so you basically you know you ran you self-experimented your way into like a, a real firm grasp of a lot of these uh neurobiological um mechanisms yeah totally yeah i tried i mean well i guess i'll just say it. i tried like painkillers i've tried stimulants antidepressants antipsychotics a bunch of different sedatives like benzos um a bunch of weird experimental glutamate drugs that are supposed to enhance learning and memory but they they actually seem to do quite weird things and sometimes it may makes you <laughs> feel stupid instead 
You're right, of course. Yeah, the whole neotropic sort of Sisyphean goal of like, well, if I just change this one little thing and then, oops, I changed way too many things. Oh, dear. Yeah, like I've had times where I use like new pepts mixed with paracetam. And mm. like some people say they don't get anything from that. But when I was doing it, uh, I had all these variable effects. But one of the times, uh, it was like my whole mind just emptied and I got freaked out that that, that was it. Like I was just going to not think anymore or that like, yeah. I would just sit there and like stare at my perception with nothing going on. Right. You're just this blank pain of, yeah, high dose neopept is actually scary like that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I, I've heard people getting, one of my projects was that someone I know got a two-dimensional vision that lasted after using new pets, which is kind of scary, but I don't know. Super spooky. Super spooky for sure. Yeah, I mean, when you're messing with those very deep level, like when you're messing at the level of peptides, it's extremely scary because you could you could cause downstream sequelae that are like a disease nobody's encountered before. Like you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, totally. Like maybe these things cause brain cancer. Who knows? Who knows? Or just like modify, you know, sort of nor normal neurotransmitter function in a not irreversible way, but relatively irreversible way that could be like just very bad i mean basically it's like some sort of post-acute withdrawal symptom syndrome but with like peptides yeah right that's yeah you know you know it's it's kind of random but did you know terrence mckenna had a brain tumor oh yeah absolutely i'm yeah uh, what very if it's interesting Right, right at 2000, right at his, like, 50th year. Yeah, it was a very interesting thing. It's like certain brains just operate too fast for this world or some, something like that. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. But yeah, it doesn't surprise me that there was something odd with his brain. I mean, he experimented some. Like, those things he experimented with shouldn't ever cause that. Uh, we hope, right? I mean, if he did deter, you know, experiment a little bit with deter, as, as, you know, early on, but other than that, can't think of anything that would cause, like, serious brain damage that he was a proponent of. Hmm. But, um, so I was thinking as a sort of starter before we get into something highly technical would be perhaps, um, like, explain the basics of receptors and neurotransmitters, like receptor binding and just some of the essential memes and terms. So that people don't get quite lost, because like there's a lot of things that we're going to take for granted saying that a lot of people maybe d would get lost immediately if we just jumped in on it. So is there sort of like a quick, you know, rundown you could give for the uninitiated? Yeah, sure. Um, so receptors. So in the brain, there's a bunch of neurons, which are brain cells. They're all connected by synapses. And uh, at the synapses, that is where receptors are. The receptors, uh, they bind different chemicals, and once they're bound, either the neuron is excited or depressed. And uh, so drugs basically emulate uh, chemicals that are in our brain, or um, the chemicals in our brain are essentially drugs too. 
Mm-hmm. So everything going on, every thought, every uh, perception or whatever, it is just kind of stimulated by chemicals binding to these receptors and producing different effects. And mm-hmm. so another important thing is that, uh, like, if so the, the popular chemicals would be like dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, uh, acetylcholine, right. and GABA, and there's a bunch more, but, and no opioids. Yeah. 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 And uh, so, like, the way you can kind of think about each of those different things works is basically, uh, at least predominantly the way I try to think about it, is that if you take something like dopamine or GABA or glutamate or whatever, those things don't have, they're not, their effects aren't really isolated, but instead, uh, like if you increase GABA, that the effects that you observe are because of what it's doing to things like dopamine or glutamate. So it's kind of very interconnected. And uh, each thing that you mess with will mess with a bunch of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very hard to separate the streams of different neurotransmitter effects because they're all so deeply bound into cascades, you know, signal cascades. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the uh, stuff that you specifically like to talk about, I was thinking you might be able to introduce the concept of um, serotonin receptor subunits, like the 5-HC2ABC, um, and what you maybe think about the dynamics going on in there. Okay, sure. Do you think, do you think we should go into something more broad first before we get... How about Super the, uh, yeah, we could, uh, yeah, maybe explain for people at home the uh, the general notion of the default mode network, because that's sort of the core system being worked on by psychedelics. Yeah, so the default mode network, so in the brain, you have all these different regions, and you'll have like the prefrontal cortex and the visual cortex, uh, you'll have like the thalamus and all these different regions, And so the default mode network is kind of an orchestra of different regions doing a certain pattern. It's like a common pattern that we observe under certain circumstances that we've decided to call that pattern of brain activity the default mode network. And it's basically opposed to a more action-oriented network, which, so, so when you do a task like say say you're driving especially like the first time uh you might be forced into a more action oriented network in your brain uh you have to be presently aware of your senses you have to pay attention to everything around you and so mm-hmm. the default mode network is kind of something opposite of that when when you don't have to pay attention to your surroundings as much you can kind mm-hmm. of enter this default mode network, which is associated to, like, daydreaming, uh, people associated to the sense of self. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of considered a... Uh, I think it's crucial for memory access and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. And it's a lot of people talk about it in the sense of it's a neurobiological correlate of uh, ego as yeah. such. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but well, what I think is that there's probably a small part of the default mode network that is ego, but I don't think the whole thing could be described as ego, basically. Certainly, that's definitely reductive, but yeah, right. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, like, uh, in terms of the default no, uh, mode network and psychedelics and neuroplasticity, uh, how, like, so the general idea is that psychedelics suppress the default mode network, and that's how a lot of the uh, neuroplastic changes and behavioral and perceptual improvements that people experience. A lot of those changes happen via suppression of default in the mode network. So uh, could you maybe describe how that happens? Yeah, so what I kind of think is happening, and uh, so this is especially... Uh, here are what kind of drugs that we're talking about would be like LSD, psilocybin, and all of the serotonin type uh, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And what what I sort of believe is happening uh, when we ingest those things is that it uh, it may suppress a sort of memory system that. Uh, like say you you go about your life and you you're everything that's going on in your life is completely guided by memory almost not everything but when you're an adult uh, you are you've kind of already programmed almost everything about your daily life uh, through different types of memory so like you could probably navigate your room with your eyes closed. You can probably, uh, like, you know how to use your hands. You know where they are. Uh, you know right. how to look at the world. And so I think what might be happening is that when you disrupt certain kinds of memory, that suddenly we have no choice but to... Uh, enter this kind of uh, present moment network, the the thing that is opposite of the default mode network. So right. I, I didn't mention it too much before, but those two networks, they're basically anti-correlated, especially in adults. So right. what that means is that uh, like if the action mode network is going up in activity, then the default mode network is going down. And if the default mode goes up, then the action mode is going down. Mm. And um, I think it's kind of a measure for... Uh, it's probably a lot of things, but I think one of the important things is it may measure how much you are in the present moment. And so, right. like, a lot of our lives being guided by constant loops in our head... Like, like everything that we predict about what's coming next in every moment of time, uh, the, there's, there's kind of like, it's like we're stuck on scripts, kind of. So, like, when yeah. people go about their lives, they expect what's going to happen next, and that kind of is a bias. It is going to lead to what 
people call like uh, what is it uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy and so mm-hmm. yeah the more that we live within this kind of network of expected outcomes in our lives the more that that just becomes true and then it also validates uh, our assumptions and I think a lot of people who are depressed and suffering from different kinds of mental health problems are stuck in that kind of, in those kind of loops. Like a depressed person might assume that there's no hope for them. So they don't try. And then that leads to them never getting somewhere. So then they're like, wow, look, there's no hope. (laughs) Right. It's almost like the calcification of, of scripted patterns learned scripted patterns that are set by social experience and trauma and social defeat or or reward you know social reward and all these things it it just becomes calcified in certain people to where those scripts are pathological and then they need to be melted in some way and that's where psychedelics come in yes totally yes and uh in my opinion i think that a lot of the visual and different strange effects are also a product of disrupting this kind of memory scripts so that um, uh, so like for example here's where we could kind of get into the idea that psychedelics might induce a childlike state of mind mm-hmm. um, right the, uh, the phoenix effect as you've dubbed it yeah, so so the term Phoenix Effects is, uh, it basically is what it sounds like. It is kind of like, the idea of it is that when you take psychedelics, your mind undergoes a kind of death and rebirth. And so um, by removing, or removing access to these kind of memory networks, I think that... Uh, it's as if you never learned how to deal with the world like you did the first time. Like you, you revoked access to prior experiences. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that you will forget about like memories of events or anything like that. It's a different kind right. of memory. Although maybe high doses. Kind of forgetting, yeah. Yeah. It might be more like perhaps at the very high doses you might find yourself incapable of driving a car or right. um, walking even or seeing it's really basic stuff even right that's the weird thing too because it's you know it's the default mode network and the active mode network on a sort of up down axis with each other you would assume on that real reductive framework that like oh well psychedelics should make you really good at driving a car yeah, right. Yeah, that's actually a good point because, well, I will say I do think the low doses might be good for doing that kind of thing because I think it kind of yeah. you know, makes you suddenly present and more interested in the present. The same as like, like if you saw a new movie for the first time, you're going to be paying attention to it more than if you were forced to watch it like 10 times in a row, you're going to start zoning out. You can kind mm-hmm. of imagine that our lives are like a constant replay of certain elements. Like the sky is constantly blue. My room constantly looks the same. My friends are constantly the same people. 
although that's debatable, right? But <laughs> but um but there's some amount of like constant repetition in life and I think that that's when we start to like zone out and so like how how I mentioned the default mode network is associated with daydreaming. So mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense in that context that uh with all this repetition and familiarity you find yourself uh zoning out and not even it's like you don't you could you like how i said you can walk through your room and probably get to the door with your eyes closed yeah right and, uh, absolutely with that metaphor you could imagine that uh your life is being lived with blindfolds on and then psychedelics are kind of stripping your ability to exist on that plane anymore and your blindfolds yeah. are removed and you see the world as if it was new right as it is for whatever that means as it is without uh you know pre-constructed script filters for all sensory input for all everything you know intra brain thought you know like all of those filters being gone, you are seeing it as it is, but it can look like chaos because there aren't all these filters that make the world assemble itself into a cognizable whole, like in any sort of, you know, discrete sense. Um, yeah, Huxley spoke about that in, uh, in the terms of mind at large and a cerebral reducing valve. And that remains a very good apt metaphor. Yeah, totally. And so this this gets into an interesting area that I so I forgot to put it in the list of things that we were going to talk about, but because it was a newer project, there, there's mm -hmm. uh, I've been focusing a lot on synesthesia now. And yeah, absolutely. So synesthesia is the idea of crossing your senses, like you might taste. Uh, smells, or you might, uh, or you, and better yet, you might taste red, or hear red, or whatever else kind of thing. And the some of the common studied forms of synesthesia is like uh, graphene color synesthesia is a common one. That is basically uh -huh. uh, letters or words might be associated to different colors. And um, right. So what's interesting is that uh, infants, that one of the leading hypotheses or theories surrounding synesthesia is that that infants might all be synesthetic and that we slowly uh, lose that ability. And uh, so, Yeah, wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and uh, so I... Besides synesthesia, going back to the Phoenix effect, I kind of argue in that project that there's a lot of different mental abilities that we don't rely on anymore because we've kind of we've kind of tunneled out from our original experience into something much more abstract, but also something mm -hmm. that's way more efficient. Like we're taking, right. uh, uh, like so, for example. Uh, photographic memory is on, almost only seen in young children, but uh, it's almost never seen in adults. And I think that 
it is probably similarly lost, just like synesthesia, because we learn that we can tie our memories to, like, sentences or sounds, or we can we can really just take tiny little pieces of the memories and only retain that instead of fully encoding, like, this, like, 3D video or something like that, you know? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's just what is useful to you to survive as a human being, and that uh, often involves not weird experiences. It involves not, you know, having a synesthetic experience every few minutes. Um, a lot of things just get phased out by the scripts that overlay them. Yeah, and so I think that that infantile synesthesia, I feel like that is actually the base of our perceptions. I think that what ends up happening is while we learn to create these scripts, we're basically learning which synesthetic connections we should keep. And um, so, for an example, I think that if I say the word dog, this pulls up an image of a creature for you, and I would argue that this is synesthesia. It's just everyone shares this because our culture kind of, uh, they basically mandate that we know this synesthetic pattern. And uh, for so, those. So you're kind of saying that language is a synesthetic experience that kind of like becomes, you have a certain amount of synesthetic memory and language crowds it out. Is that maybe accurate? I wouldn't say that it crowds it out, but I think that we prune away a lot of the synesthetic connections because otherwise we would have such a messy view of the world. Like, for example, mm -hmm. say you're a baby and you're trying to learn language and you hear the word dog, but then you associate it to a bunch of things like what if you associate it not just to the dog but the leash and the dog's owner and you can never remove that pattern again and you think everything that happened in that moment when the word dog was said was related that would be too much uh that would be all around by the same person right it's like a three-year-old thing yeah totally and um so i think that the pruning of these synesthetic connections is kind of what gives definition to our perception of the world and uh, with language though we're kind of like the reason i think language is especially an interesting case of synesthesia um, is because that's not a reflection of the natural recurring patterns in the world necessarily i mean it is in a sense but not in the sense it, it's an artificial uh, repeated, repetitious pattern. So, like, I think a lot of the synesthesia that we retain as an adult is more based on things like cause and effect and kind of, uh, because the nature of physics is so repetitious and consistent that we form an understanding that I would argue is still a synesthetic understanding. But when you think of language, if I say the word dog, that's just a sound. Like, I'm just making a sound with my mouth, dog, right? And right. then we associate that with these arbitrary shapes on pieces of paper that have nothing to do with the sound. 
And then we associate that, all of that, to a creature which has nothing to do with the sound or the pictures. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just because we keep training it and reinforcing it that it survives these synaptic pruning periods that we have during childhood where most of the connections get destroyed or not really destroyed, but they get pruned away. Right. I would say that I think that, for instance, with such a universal term as dog or mom or dad or, you know, there are things built into our language apparatus biologically you know, that, that produce certain uh, uh, phonemes frequently. Um, and like, you know, a dog has some something to do with the actual creature, the, what it sounds like. You know, there's some kind of onomatopoeia a little bit going on there. Um, certain words do have a certain resonance with our biology, just the way we speak. So I, I think there's a little universality there. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, like, if you think of the word ma and da, I bet that it was actually infants that created those words because... Oh, absolutely. Totally, yeah. Like, they prob- that's probably, like, somehow an easier first thing to say, and then the parents are like, yes, that I am ma, or I am da, or who, whatever it is, yeah, you know? I've, I've talked to some people who've done that research, and they are... Uh, that that's very cross-cultural yeah i mean that's extraordinarily cross-cultural uh almost every single baby says uh, ma and da like phoneme yeah for you know it's it's super universal there i've heard that there's some universals to synesthesia patterns as well like there's that famous uh uh it's like Bobo and Kaka or something. I don't know. Something like that. And uh, they have like these shapes that they show people. And they ask you, which one is Bobo? And people will pick the rounder looking one for Bobo. And then the sharp looking one for the Kaka one or whatever. It's probably not the right, right word. but um, Right. But something in that. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, Kaka means... Right, in several yeah. languages. So. Yeah, it's super interesting stuff with that. Um, so, like, there's the Phoenix effect where it's, it's you know, recreating these things. You also have a model of schizophrenia that's sort of based on social trauma and social defeat. Did you want to get into that at all? Yeah, so I'll say one last thing about the Phoenix effects, uh, something that's interesting. Uh, so I mentioned the synaptic pruning. Uh, one of the core ideas with this is that psychedelics in animals seem to induce synaptogenesis, which is essentially the opposite of pruning. It is bringing back more synapses. So I feel like there's something really interesting to that. But yeah, let's move on to uh, the schizophrenia topic. Should I just go into it or what? Yeah, yeah. So, schizophrenia. So, basically, so a lot of people argue, or some people have argued in the past that psychedelics are like schizophrenia, which I don't really agree with. I think there might be 
occasional overlaps, which makes it an even harder puzzle to separate. For uh, sure, but you're still kind of, it's like going back on the whole, like, it goes all the way back to the psychotomimetic model and still, and like, still trying to pull science away from that. Yeah. Yeah, there's like, there's a lot of problems with psychosis, which I, I guess maybe that is where I should start before I... Because it, it'll, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. So, yeah. So the some of the problems with the psychotic diagnoses, if you really look at some of the symptoms. So there's basically positive and negative symptoms, and the negative symptoms, they are uh, described as symptoms that take away from your experience. And positive symptoms are kind of additive, that you're experiencing things that other people don't experience. I think already that characterization is a little bit absurd, but let's just mm -hmm. go with that anyway. <laughs> but sure. um, So negative symptoms, though, if you really look at the list, it's essentially like depression and kind of brain fog and similar things to that. And I don't really like this because... Well, as you'll see in a little bit, I think it makes sense for people with the kinds of problems or people who've experienced the the things that tend to be risk factors for the development of schizophrenia. It makes sense that those oh. people would be depressed or if you became diagnosed, it makes sense that you'd be depressed. And it also makes sense that Absolutely. if you were depressed, that you might... Well, I, well, I'll get. I'm not. I'm not going to go that direction yet, actually. But yeah, so, I'm not sure I've ever met a schizophrenic who wasn't always also like slightly depressed, you know, in some way. Yeah. Um. So one of the problems with this diagnosis that I have is the concept of delusions, and I think there's two different two different ways that you can kind of look at delusions. So I think that there's ideas that people have that a lot of society rejects and that we can call those delusions, but there's also something else where people can rapidly develop certain specific common types of strange ideas like usually under the flu mm -hmm. un influence of a drug or something. Mm -hmm. And right, yeah. Those two I think could be separate. I'm not sure still about this, but... I think there's a large amount of overlap, but they're definitely distinct phenomena in the sense of one is just like, you are very weird in terms of how society thinks about human beings being. There's that level of like, of that. And then there's also the level of this sort of supercharged associative function of where it's like the paranoia of like, they're out to get me and it spirals. The, yeah. the, the, like you know, self-reinforcing loop of more and more delusions to where and it just becomes, it's like this agitated form of the former in some way. I think it's an overlap, but it's a good distinction to make, I think. Yeah. So, like, in the case of, so I would say, let's say, oh, let me think. I think the one involving that kind of paranoid thing that you just described, that is kind of the one I expect to be more often related to drug use, and mm -hmm. then uh, the other kind, though, where someone might believe in weird ideas like, say, like Flat Earth or conspiracies or whatever it might be that people consider 
a false idea. idea. You know, whatever. Yeah. I, I am. I'm especially uh, suspicious of that kind of delusion because I don't know. There's there's all these problems with this with like it, it assumes some level of truth or like objective truth about the world for one and it kind mm-hmm. of and if it doesn't assume that it kind of assumes that we should be conforming to the cultures around us and there's clearly a lot of ideas in culture that we could argue seem delusional like magical oh. beliefs like people often will bring up something like religious ideas um Right. But that is considered excursion. has the word cult in it. I always like to point that out. Cult yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think essentially humans... Uh, that the, the idea of cults, it's like everything that humans do, like society is cultish. Like that's just kind of humans' tendency to behave as an animal, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, that's just our social organizational patterns. It's just It's just how we work. Yes, and and I think if you take, let's say, like someone who, like, someone who's not very educated but is very common in the world, that person probably has a very unrealistic view of what reality is like, but we wouldn't really diagnose such a person with schizophrenia. Or if we started to go that route, I feel like the ultimate endpoint would be that only like these really high status academics are not schizophrenic <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it's it, do you, like, do you agree absolutely with everything that the culture says is X? Then yeah. you're not any kind of crazy. Like it's 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 a ridiculous like you know shifting of goalposts thing. You know, like you're saying if X Y Z and et cetera, like sign this contract of belief. Yeah, so that brings us to the idea that maybe the concept of delusion might be delusional, right? <laughs> certainly, um, certainly. Some aspects of it, no doubt. And this isn't to suggest that there's not something going on different with schizophrenics, because I do think that it is the case that... that Because I've experienced this myself where I've developed very strange ideas in a short period of time, like paranoia, mm-hmm. and I've thought up conspiracy-type thinking under, under the influence of cannabis, for example. Mm-hmm. And so there's clearly something there. But I think the problem, though, is to be careful in basing the idea on whether an idea is true or not. I feel like I'm not yet sure how to how to come or how do you face this problem of the delusion but i think we need to rework the way that we see this because like i think it's very possible that like you can take cannabis and be detached from your regular way of assuming things about the world and then find something that's actually more true than uh, than the things you believed before you took it. I, mm-hmm. I think that the thing is that when you think of a new idea on your own, 
you would have to be like an expert for it not for for like a good chance of it not to be a wrong idea. But the thing is, yeah. society is basically built upon these religions that are uh, that are dominated by presumed experts. And so, like, all of society is basically like these cults and religions based on dogmatic submission to the expert class of humans. Mm. And if you are someone who is to think of an idea at all, uh, it doesn't matter if you're, like, supposedly crazy or not, thinking of an idea that isn't conforming to what the experts say or what... uh, or yeah, I guess what the experts say, uh, that uh, has a high chance of being wrong because almost like if you take any problem of, of understanding about the world, every solution you come up with to explain that, basically every single solution except one of them is probably wrong. So. So there's not very many right things to think. And I would even say that humans haven't figured out many right things at all. We've just kind of, like there's this quote, I forgot who the guy that said it is, but the the guy said like, uh, all models are wrong or something like that. Of course, the map is not the territory, Robert Anton Wilson, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's perfect because <laughs> that's basically right. the situation. The whole and, of epistemology is just good simulations of truth, but no simulation of there is no truth because it's just approximate simulations up to nth degree, you know, arbitrarily close to a hundred. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel that that's kind of where you could try to tie in things like creativity to the idea of schizotypy, though there's kind of like mixed correlations on this. So I want to make sure that's out there. But I think for someone to come up with their own ideas, that it, that is kind of one of the core risk factors that probably leads a lot of people to become or experience schizophrenic-like symptoms. Certainly. And so that kind of gets into this overarching idea of the social defeat hypothesis. Um, yeah, going back to what you just said, it's like it's a thousands-year-old trope of the mad genius. You know, yeah, totally. I was thinking, you know, inventing and thinking things that just nobody has come anywhere close to before is usually there's usually kind of something wrong with with that person. Yeah, you know, something not quite seated. Like they're not normal or necessarily happy. You know, the the unhappy poet kind of whole vibe. You know, there's. There's always, there, there is, it's just an ancient trope, right? Totally, yeah. And, um, so, so I remembered something I was going to say, I forgot to say it, so I'll just go at it. So, you can kind of, like, see right now in society even that they were, we're going through this period where now everyone disagrees about what's true, and people are calling it, like, the misinformation era and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And now conspiracy theories are becoming really popular. And um, the Internet seems to have sparked this issue of uh, 
now now there is basically not really a general consensus about what is true about our society, about our world, and so on. And yeah, uh, absolutely. It's it's this era of uh, disinformation, of just like disinformation bombs going off left, right, and forward, of everybody trying to trick everybody and having tools to do so, on you know on a scale unimaginable thirty years ago. Yeah. So this social defeat hypothesis kind of comes in with, um, so, so, okay, let's look at some of the symptoms that, or some of the memes that we might associate with conspiracy theorists and schizophrenics. We tend, mm. they tend to, uh, people who believe in like a conspiracy theory, they might call other people sheep, right? That's a common trope. And sheeple, yes. Yes. And so there's this kind of narcissistic kind of tenden tendency that comes along with uh, these alternate viewpoints of reality. And I, I think that's actually something that is just, it's it's not entirely inherent, but it's almost inherent to just the nature of disagreeing with other people in general. I think it only becomes mm. noticeable if you are in the minority, though. And I think the effects are worse if you are in the minority. So, like, if you believe in a conspiracy theory, I think there's a lot of pressure on you proving that you're not stupid. So you might act extra cocky and arrogant and absolutely i mean yeah when you know the lone arbiter of truth standing firm against the hordes of brainwashed skeptics telling them they're crazy you know that whole thing yeah and if you talk to these people they believe in whatever conspiracy uh you might sometimes notice that if you like begin to talk about that topic it's like they've been triggered and they will they'll talk defensively and it's like you can tell that they've been completely primed by experiences of rejection and that they expect you to think that they're crazy and like you even see it in movies where someone is getting kind of schizoid or something they'll be like I, I, i'm not crazy man i'm not crazy you got to believe me like even if no one has even expressed doubt it's like it's like the person is already just completely defensive right off the bat and that's right, because that's an aspect of paranoia you know that that is the aspect of paranoia sort of like suspicion of everybody else yeah so i think I think this kind of paranoia in particular is very conditioned. Like I've noticed I've noticed this in myself from believing in things that are against the normal consensus conclusions. I noticed mm -hmm. that I like for example in certain group chats if I express a certain opinion that I think a lot of people disagree with, it instantly strikes up paranoia and that there is actually research on this where they had uh they had people of uh different social classes like rich and poor and also different political beliefs uh they exposed them to each other and measured uh paranoia and it, it like it happened basically under the condition of different classes and different uh political beliefs uh -huh. 
So I think it's kind of an inherent thing that people feel because it's like it's like you've become the enemy uh, in a sense, and mm-hmm, right. everyone else might be your enemy too to, in that in that way. Right. Yeah. The, the suspicion seems to go inward at the same time it goes outward. Yeah. And uh, so the suspicion is just omnipresent, right? It's an omnipresent suspicion, paranoia, and that's what it becomes so upward looping is because it is omnipresent. This feeling. Yeah. Um. So I guess another element about social defeat theory yeah so my hypothesis about this topic is that that stress itself can be hallucinogenic and that it follows the same kind of mechanisms that the drug salvia uh has which Mm -hmm. is the kappa opioid receptor and um there is evidence of so stress basically releases kappa opioid receptor stimulating drugs in your brain when you get stressed out. And right. uh, this might induce, so like this chemical is called dynorphin and it's been studied in research on stress, addiction, PTSD, uh, depression. I don't know if I already said that, uh, schizophrenia mm. and Kind of almost everything bad. <laughs> Pretty um, much just the bad molecule. It's the, the the aversion signaling molecule. Yes, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that's an important part. Uh, so, like, if you think of endorphins, a lot of people know what those are, right? It's like the euphoric right. rewarding chemical. But dynorphins are literally basically the opposite of that. They are the anti-rewarding chemical. They make you feel bad. They are also related to opioids, so both of those are technically opioid chemicals. Mm-hmm. And um, so salvia stimulates the same receptors as this, and um, I basically argue that under enough stress, a person will begin to experience uh, hallucinogenic effects at some point. And right one of the major stressors is social isolation. I think this one is particularly bad because we uh, live in a society, right? That's what people say. And, uh, but I think it is because so much of our coping strategies and our, like the easiest way I feel that someone can escape extreme stress is to be comforted by other people or rewarded by other people. Yes. But otherwise, the options are things like drugs or food or you just sit there or something like that, right? Yeah, it's it's something, it's something else. And so, like, in the case of schizophrenia, you can imagine that someone who holds a belief like flat earth theory is going to have a lot of social problems. They're going to be laughed yes. at. People won't take them seriously. They'll basically be bullied and everyone has right. just normalized that. Like it, like it's totally fine if I laugh at a flat earther just right in their face. Like people probably wouldn't stick up for that person, and it's right. kind of bad. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it forces people deeper into the uh, entrenched positions, deeper into the paranoia, etc. Yep. Um, should we keep going on social defeat? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, how, maybe how it relates to uh, dynorphin and, and what it is that doing at a neurological level might be interesting. So... So dynorphin releases under the case of stress and pain, and it seems to be very general as far as I can tell yet. So any, so in my opinion, I would say any time that you feel bad, there's probably dynorphin activity going on. And right. the purpose of it is to train you not to do whatever it is that you're doing. So mm -hmm. if, uh, in the case of social contexts, we have kind of, uh, the, the system that we have in society is that we, we basically learned how to hijack each other's dynorphin systems as a way of controlling other people. Right. We stress each other out using either physical violence in the case of like certain kinds of punishment or the threat of jail, the threat of violence, the threat of social rejection, um, threat of, de uh, of deprivation of austerity. Yes. And so I think that the more that someone deviates from what is socially acceptable, the more likely that there are to experience psychotic effects because of, uh, a stronger dose of this dynorphin stuff. Mm. Um, should I talk like in detail about what happens or like, like, yeah, yeah, receptors? yeah, I think it would be very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so some of the ways that I think it's doing this is that, uh, so some of you probably know about drugs like PCP, ketamine, um, dextromethorphan, those, uh, the way that those drugs function is by blocking glutamate receptors that are called NMDA receptors. And so they're usually used for like surgery because they numb your body and kind of turn off very many functions of the brain. And dynorphin actually blocks that receptor too, but it's not that simple. It can also overstimulate it and cause brain damage through that mechanism as well. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Enough dynorphin is actually neurotoxic. Is that accurate? Yeah. So it can be neurotoxic or neuroprotective. And mm -hmm. the condition seems to be based on other neurochemicals like glycine, for example. But, mm. uh, but so much of it's... Uh, much of the other effects are probably more likely coming from the kappa opioid receptor, which also shuts down glutamate release. Um, and so this might simulate some of the effects that people observe on things like ketamine or PCP. Uh, right, just because ketamine way. is also a kappa opioid receptor. It has some agonism at KOR. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's important to mention too. That... Uh, yeah, it's not super high, but I think that in the doses of a K-hole, I'm pretty sure it's pretty active at that receptor. Mm-hmm. May account for some of the scariness encountered in there. Yeah. 
Totally, yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing, is when people take the drugs that bind to this receptor, it's almost always bad. Not always, but yeah, it's, it's like people feel traumatized, disturbed, uh, it's like a nightmarish kind of trip, like, so people will, like, take salvia and knock out almost entirely for, like, seven minutes or something, and mm -hmm. during that seven minutes, um, well, so at first, I think at the lower doses, you're still in reality a bit, and what I've heard described on it is stuff like two-dimensional vision, um, things looking completely alien, yet somehow it's not like things have actually changed. It's just suddenly incomprehensibly strange. and it, It's almost like ultra-familiar. There's almost an ultra-familiar aspect. At the same time, it's the most alien thing one has ever seen. And that's almost what's so disturbing about it. You experienced this, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Very Do you want to talk about it? Uh, sure, yeah. So, very high dose salvia is like, I, I, the phrase that ran through my head that became a sort of meme of it is it's it's like the face of everyone you've ever known, but it's something inscrutably alien is happening to all extant data you've ever experienced, uh, is maybe some kind of way to put it. Um, but it is, I mean, it's extraordinary beyond extraordinary. I mean, it's I, I think about it that it's uh, it's next tier DMT in terms of weed, uh, weirdness. It's 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 so weird. It's it's beyond even the the threshold, the the singularity of weird. It's it's so weird, but it has some. It bears some relationship to things you that exist in your world, and it's almost this connection between this ultra alienness and what you already know and experience and it's like that that contact between what you previously were and then what you are in the Salvinoran A flash is that that connection is terrifying because there's almost a feeling that you could be you could lose the stream you were in you could lose that into this alienness thing and there's this certain terror that grips you in the midst of that um yeah it's uh it's not to be taken lightly. I'll say that. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I've actually done it a little bit, but never really high amounts. In my own mm. experience, I did experience the two-dimensional thing. I also experienced these geometric sparkling patterns on the walls a little bit, only for like a second. Uh -huh. And um, I, I would like talk and not know what... I was saying it was very bizarre. Certainly, yeah. It's bizarre is the word. Bizarre yeah, is the word. Alien yeah, yeah. and bizarre are the words for that experience of of kappa opioid just overwhelmed. Just the gates, bla you know, the gates kicked in of the kappa opioid receptor is. I mean, I I think about it in terms of all the, uh, you know, there's all the meta, the psychedelic meta in terms of Leary and and the. Uh, older thinkers in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, there's all that about different, these drugs simulate the Bardo stages, you know, the uh, intellectual framework of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, of the Bardo phases of death. And DMT is one order of that. And salvia, to me, is the true Bardo drug that induces what those people are talking about in terms of this intellectual 
conceptual perceptive framework that, that the you know the Tibetans built uh, salvia is exactly what they're talking about if if one were to ask me um, but um, so I, I have in my notes about how dynorphin interacts with serotonin in interesting ways okay yeah should I just generally talk about it Sure, because I don't know a ton about the interaction between dynorphin and serotonin, so that would I think it would be of interest, yeah. So I will preface this by saying I'm a little bit uncertain about this interaction at the moment, but and it's uh, I don't know how uncertain I am to be honest, but the thing is, I don't know. I have this weird feeling that it's possible that psychedelics actually induce dynorphin activity, but there's no, there's not really. That wouldn't any shock research. me at all. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't shock me at all. I mean, there's certainly in a psychedelic trip, there's extremely aversive components yeah, to exactly. a hardcore psychedelic trip where you're processing things and all these different things are coming to mind that aren't what you want to think about. It's stuff you haven't dealt with. It's stuff you haven't wanted to look at. Um, there's definitely an aversive component that's happening at the same time. You're like, when you're in the throes of the serotonin, serotonergic activity, you're very in a bliss state. You're in a unity state. You're in this and that. But there are these phases. There's these phases of the experience that uh, at a certain phase, you're in bliss, but then you descend. In, and it goes back again to uh, Huxley. You know, the, the first two uh, pieces he wrote were Doors of Perception, Heaven and Hell. Heaven and hell going into the this this uh, dynamic of aversive versus blissful qualia of the experience and and the phases of it. Um, so uh, you know it seems almost like there's some kind of seesaw effect of serotonin and dynorphin at play over the the time course of a psychedelic trip. Um, I, and I again I don't know a ton about the receptor dynamics. So maybe you could elucidate that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if. If it were the case that the first half or so, or however long, the first section might be um, mostly like predominantly the serotonin mechanisms, and then maybe at some point once you start coming down, not da not uh, I don't know if I should even use that word because that might be when everything gets crazy for most people, right? But um, sure. Once the yeah. serotonin yeah, yeah. stops peaking, maybe that could be when things get much more dynorphinergic. Uh -huh. um, so here's what I have so far come to understand about this: these two things, serotonin and dynorphin, interacting. Um, so the first is that... Um, okay, so we haven't mentioned the serotonin receptors yet. They're, they're, so the ones that people focus on with psychedelics is 5-HT2A, and mm -hmm. there's also 5-HT1A and 5-HT2C. So I'll just say 2A, 2C, and 1A for this, because it's easier, mm -hmm. right? Um, so... So the two-way receptor is famously thought to underlie most of the psychedelic effects. I don't really know that that's the case, but that's right. what people have argued in the past. 
the two. The interesting thing being that there are some psychedelics that don't appear to have strong agonism at 2A yet are still highly psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah, that also reminds us. So, well, I won't get into that yet. But it, but uh, so, so the thing is, there was a study with LSD, where they found that LSD could suppress the effects of a kappa opioid receptor agonist in animals, but it didn't suppress. They didn't check this suppression through receptors. They checked it through. Uh, Behavioral aspect? Yes, exactly, behavior. They usually will measure a certain behavioral response to the kappa opioid receptor agonism. Yeah, head twitch response. uh, This one is not that, but that is is an interesting point, too. Did you know, so so basically psychedelics induce a head twitch response, and that seems to be tied to the 5-HD2A receptor. And... Uh. um, Cannabis actually suppresses that. THC actually suppresses that. And multiple cannabinoid agonists suppress it. So it's kind of interesting. Right. Very interesting that the uh, sort of bodily expression of of massive serotonin cascade signaling, uh, the sort of what shows up in mice like they're twitching, uh, when you <laughs> yeah. smoke weed, apparently that goes away and you kind of chill out. Like, it doesn't shock it's not that shocking, right? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, the head switch response, there's like problems for using that as an actual indicator. But, um, but okay, so this... Perhaps we could make some kind of vague corollary between head twitch response and likelihood to be dancing at a rave or something. (laughs) Yeah, that would be funny. Um, so... So this study that I mentioned about LSD, uh, it, is, it isn't about the head twitch response. It's about um, this intracranial stimulation response that I has... See. Yeah. Okay, so I don't remember all the details of how that worked, but basically the so LSD suppressed the kappa opioid-induced effects. And it did this both acutely and chronically. And so here's the thing. Uh, there is certain receptors that LSD binds to that do have been shown to suppress kappa opioid receptor type effects, like uh, specifically like they stopped the... So 1A receptor agonism or stimulation, that stops the release of dif- dynorphin that's induced by stimulants and dopamine, which is seemingly the main way that... As far as I can tell yet, that is one of the main ways that dynorphin is released. It's basically like dopamine stimulates some receptors, and specifically the D1 receptor, if that gets stimulated, then Uh dynorphin will increase. And so there's like a whole bunch of ways that that's been linked to drug addiction. So there's sort of a ceiling on dopamine where dynorphin kicks in at some point. Yeah, and um, that's probably also why people get psychotic on dopamine drugs, too, in my opinion. Right, yes, yes, absolutely. That's, that's yeah, that's one of those key connects there. Yeah, it makes a good bit of sense to me. So one of the, one of the interesting things, so I think it's possible that psychedelics could simulate some of the effects of 
uh, dynorphin without it having to be dynorphin-related effects. Uh, mm -hmm. One way is that this 2A receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor, uh, when that's stimulated, it seems that that potentiates D2 dopamine receptors. It makes them right. more sensitive to being bound. Uh-huh. And um, that that is where things get especially tricky, and that's where I'm especially unsure, because with 2A... Um, so dynorphin also sensitizes and or potentiates the D2 receptor. And mm -hmm. this receptor has been related to schizophrenia and psychosis. Right, right. The, the classical target of stimulants, correct? Kind of. Stimulants are usually very wide. They just kind of, like a lot of them just release dopamine generally. But uh, it is... Well, the, it's the target for the uh, very pleasurable effects of stimulants. It's the particular, like, one that is, like, that's what people are looking for out of Adderall. Not necessarily just the pleasurable effects, but the behavioral effects. And D2 seems more key than D1 in, in what I've read, but... Yeah, I think it releases endorphins or enkephalins, which are both rewarding opioids. And that's actually maybe potentially part of this puzzle as well but here's where it gets kind of weird so my this theory about dynorphin and serotonin and schizophrenia and all this stuff uh one of the things is that uh d1 dopamine receptors and d2 receptors they both seem to localize on the same neurons in certain parts of the brain and on those neurons it is dynorphin neurons. Interesting. And when you remove D2 receptors, the increase of dynorphin that happens because of D1 stimulation stops. So it seems that that dynorphin release induced by D1 seems to rely on a high prevalence of D2 receptors. And also, people can get psychotic or even hallucinatory effects on D2-stimulating drugs. Right. So if you have a high uh, preponderance genetically of D2 receptors, you are almost certainly more susceptible to drug-induced psychosis, for instance. Probably. I haven't checked the research, but it's very intuitive, I would assume so. Right, right. Um... So that adds a lot of weird things to this puzzle because so it's possible that it's possible that serotonin effects are able to simulate uh, dynorphin's effects while also suppressing dynorphin itself, or it's possible that serotonin could release dynorphin um, indirectly via dopamine or other means. Yes, exactly, and it's possible that it depends on whether 1A receptors are more active or less active. It might depend on the 2C receptors. So the other thing is 2A receptors and 2C receptors. They both localize on neurons kind of indistinct ways where the 2C receptor dominant neurons are highly dynorphinergic. Uh-huh. And... The 2A receptor, on the other hand, had 
way lower dynorphin mRNA in those neurons, the ones that were 2A dominant. So that would kind of suggest that dynorphin effects are not as much of a thing for 2A. But I think it's really complex. Like, I feel like it's possible that how people talk about this set and setting thing, that it's possible that, like, say, say it depends on... What if, like, this whole puzzle comes down to whether D2 is releasing endorphins or dynorphins, and then it's just potentiating valence. It's maybe just potentiating how rewarding or how much dysphoria you experience because of an ex- whatever it is. It makes me think almost like uh, the, the hedonic treadmill is almost super sped up inside of a psychedelic experience. Perhaps you hit these peaks of bliss uh, of like serotonin and dopamine going at the same time. You're at this peak of just like one, this bliss thing. And then at some point you hit a dynorphin wall of the things have been stimulated for too long and you hit this dynorphin wall and suddenly you're sunk, you're sinking into hell. Um, and you have to sort that out. Uh, the, the, all these different concepts start swirling in out into the, the unity is filled with bats suddenly like your yeah. vision of unity is there's just like bats flying across it, you know, something like that. Um, I think that could be, uh, that could make sense. Also, I mean, it, when you're talking about all that, it strikes me that LSD, at the same time all these things are potentiating the D2, has direct D2 agonism. And LSD yeah. is well known for the freak-out phenomena. Totally. And that is the single one that was studied in the case of dynorphin, interestingly enough. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's possible that that study doesn't show enough, though, and that... so. So here's the thing. I think that psychedelics can help with schizophrenia and even any sort of issue associated with dynorphin. Like, so far, basically, the research has been showing that uh, psychedelics help with basically every kind of problem associated to dynorphin, except there hasn't been research on psychosis because of the... uh, the uh, ongoing assumption that it is dangerous to give schizophrenic psychedelics. Right, yeah. And so I think even if it's the case that psychedelics... So, so right now what I think is kind of possible is that the heavenly experience on psychedelics might not be like psychosis, but instead that might be... I would say it's more maybe like mania or something and maybe uh, antipsychotic even. And then if the experience sure, is negative, yeah. that might be more like salvia potentially. Well, bliss is sort of definitely antipodal to paranoia, if you think about it. I mean, yeah, totally. So, yeah. In that, in that context of, of what you're talking about with psychedelics, being able to help basically uh, malfunctioning dynorphin systems, um, I think about your, the whole dynorphin hypothesis and trauma and subjective experience generally. Like, I have thought of what I, uh, I term dynorphin entrainment. So, and this being associated with like, different forms of mental and physical training that involve uh, endurance of suffering in some kind of controlled way. So like ordeal shamanism is like this, 
it's uh you go through a negative experience like i mean in the very old school like shamanic training things it's it's deeply unpleasant right it's not something modern people really do yeah um there's all sorts of things about just sheer endurance of suffering that I think about this in some way of like, if you induce dynorphin intentionally and in a controlled way, you potentially over time, you get a, a large amount of, uh, you, you become attenuated to dynorphin. You become resilient to dynorphin, uh, so there's, you know, meditation, like old school meditation where you have to sit very long hours, you're not comfy, your body hurts. Um, it's, it's intense, like sitting that many hours, you know, and the old school monks, they're sitting in 40 degree, you know, 40 Fahrenheit and uh, on a cold stone floor and all, all this stuff, you know, meditation cells and austerity and, and long prayer. And then, you know, it even goes into self-flagellation and all those things and the austerities of yogis where they do all sorts of ridiculous fasting and and also self-mutilation essentially i mean in search of this ultimate bliss that may be via the sort of conquest of your dynorphin system um so you know like meditation very intense exercise like going until you absolutely can't and keep going and keep going you know the, the that whole thing and then particularly cold exposure cold is basically dynorphin like you get hit with cold and that's the most aversive signal you can get as a warm-blooded mammal it's just like sheer dynorphin just instant super dynorphin so i think that it's interesting in the context of you know it's very hip now uh cold exposure and wim hof and all this uh but it makes good biochemical sense that cold exposure you you blast yourself with dynorphin and then you survive the aversive experience that you intentionally put yourself in, like in a controlled, willed, disciplined way. And you survive that. And then you're just, after you do the dynorphin thing, you're just flooded with good feelings. Like after you turn the hot water back on on yourself, you're flooded with really nice, like biochemical things happen to you. And they persist afterwards. Um, you feel good for a while and it's not like a drug effect in the sense of it, like you feel good and then it stops and then you feel bad, you felt bad first. And then the good feeling is the dominant one afterwards that the hangover is a good hangover. Basically, if you go straight at dynorphin. Um, so I think about that a lot with particularly cold exposure, because it's pretty much the shortest biochemical route to very strong. And I mean, very intense, like cold exposure into the point of hypothermia, I'm sure is quite hallucinogenic. I know it, it, uh, amplifies hallucinogenesis and uh, psychedelic effects period to be out in the cold uh, under the influence of them. I mean, it's not necessarily maybe more hallucinogenesis potentially. I mean, but at any rate, all, all of that being related to Ninorphin. And uh, so I think that that bears some relevance on the whole thing of like, if Ninorphin happens to you, in a way that you didn't have any control of, it fucks you up. But if you had some control of it and you willingly went into it, 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 it makes you more and more conducive to these bliss states. Like you train, you tilt the neurochemical thing in a direction that is positively valenced. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a lot of that I've gotten like 
like listening to you talk about Dynorphin, talking to you about your uh, notions with it, like that started to, that gave me a certain clarity on, on that process, uh, neurobiologically. Yeah, I think it makes sense. It's kind of like a stress resilience training in a way, and maybe even more broad. Uh, this is kind of what I think that ketamine does for its antidepressant effects. I've uh. kind of called it... Well, it's, I, I wouldn't use the term I'm about to say for the things that you were describing, probably. It sounds too dramatic, maybe, but I've been calling it a chemical exorcism. And it's because... Sure, no, yeah, absolutely. It's like that for... I mean, it's like that for all of the above. Like, you know, say meditation or really intense exercise or cold exposure or ordeal shamanism, they all really involve that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's a, like, yeah, an exorcism like experience where like afterwards you are freed of demons. Like that's the feeling, right? Yeah, totally. I, I think even if we find out that some of the effects of psychedelics are due to dynorphin effects, I still think that that they will be useful in treating schizophrenia and different things. It might There might be like... So there might be nuances to all this. Like how you said control. I think that's an interesting point. I think mm -hmm. what control might mean in this case is specifically the ability to make it stop happening. So so the people who have schizophrenia, they might be in situations that they are just literally trapped. And then with, like, maybe as time progresses, it's like more and more symptoms start to show up. And right. maybe their brain starts to, like, physically change because it's, its new baseline is just perpetual stress or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the ability to control it, I think, is it is particularly that you can choose to make it stop. And it, the thing is, if you can blast it, so so like ketamine's antidepressant effects, it's been shown that, or at least the researchers claimed in 2020, this paper, it says uh, the protracted antidepressant effects of ketamine require kappa oid receptor binding acutely and also desensitization long term so so you're basically doing pretty much what you've described that you're like smashing on the stress system and then mm -hmm. afterwards you're numb to stress and that leaves you more sensitive to feeling good absolutely right yeah i mean it makes it makes sense it makes sense like it's definitely interacting with those systems, but at the same time, like with ketamine, it's interesting because it's it's blurring out perhaps the dynorphin effects that you're going through, the sort of dynorphin sense of, you know tolerance that you're inducing. You're sort of not really having an aversive time while you're on ketamine, right? It's not yeah, that bad. exactly. I although so I I maybe I could get a little bit into this. I actually was prescribed ketamine recently. And I've tried it, I think, five times now at varying uh -huh. doses. Oh, I've tried it a little bit before this, too, a long, long time ago. But I don't know. So what I notice is the 40 milligram dose, which probably doesn't stimulate kappa at all. Or it probably does maybe a little bit. I don't know. But, but that dose feels really good and kind of mystical and has 
nice manic-inducing effects for a couple days. And then uh-huh. when I did it at uh, 80, I actually felt like it was less intense of an experience for some weird reason. It was less intense at double that dose. And, Interesting. Um, like, I felt more intoxicated, but I felt like the numbness was getting a bit more... Like, it kind of almost felt boring. <laughs> but... Um, right. Uh, yeah, it was... I feel like there's maybe phases of it where it's like the lowish dose phase is like very interesting. And then there's a period of just numbness before you get to the K hole, like level of, of serious hallucination and serious sort of, uh, perceptual alteration, like internally, like extreme perceptual. And, uh, you know, that's not quite happening until you get to the hundred to 200 milligram range. Yeah. So I did 120 milligrams in, it was kind of intense. It was pretty intense. And at the peak, though, this is... What's weird is that it really was dysphoric. Like, there was points where I felt anhedonia, and I'm, like, just sitting there, like, great. Is this just... This is just what my life is going to be like now, and oh, like, I'm going right. to feel, like... Like, and I felt pain physically, even strangely, too. Like, I felt like mm-hmm. my back felt irritated, even though I'm totally feeling numbness. I felt that my back was You annoyed. felt an aversive, like, sensate from your back, yeah. Yeah, well, like, it, I have to move. interesting. Like, uh, before was what you were saying about the control thing. It comes to mind, like, dose makes the poison. So you, like, it, you can't overdose. You can't go beyond your capacity. Like, it's a training thing. You, you know, you can only induce so much dynorphin at once until your system is ready for it. But the more you're able to push those limits of your dynorphin sort of peaks that you can withstand and gain something from, like, that's that's the whole trick, I feel like, is that the dose makes the poison. It's got to be the adequate, appropriate dose of dynorphin to get a benefit. And for people under, you know, extreme social isolation and torture for instance, that's the dose is obviously far too high and you go crazy. You go insane. Yeah, yeah. So so I think we've probably covered dynorphin pretty good at this point. Um so like changing gears maybe a little bit, uh I know hallucination has been like a super focal topic for you and uh just how it's actually happening. Um could you describe some of the mechanisms of hallucination like at the neurological level yes let's do it so so let's see the one of the there's i guess we should start with that there's different kinds of what we might call hallucination and the Uh ones that i think it's pretty hard to explain how dreamlike hallucinations happen except by trying to maybe relate it to dreaming <laughs> but um but most of the stuff i've kind of focused on a little bit is more like like how people report fractals and um changes to their perception like things might look larger or two-dimensional or smaller or farther mm-hmm. away they might look like they're melting moving uh, all kinds of things. And right. So what I kind of think 
is underlying um, there's kind of a couple different angles that we can go about this. I think that so so one of the projects focused kind of on uh, the project is called Flickr, and it's basically about strobe lights and how how strobing might induce things like uh, geometry and melting walls and stuff like that, and how that might relate to what drugs are doing in the brain. So, uh. kind of... Uh, let me think where to start. So this topic can get really intense, so I'm going to try to do this without, without getting too crazy. But... <laughs> The overarching point would be that that so so a flicker it's basically on off on off stimulation right and our neurons mm -hmm. are doing that too they're firing like on 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 or whatever and so right. one of the ideas would be that when you look at a strobe light at certain frequencies that it might be uh, producing resonance patterns with the frequencies that your brain uh, is flickering at. Now, uh -huh. the brain isn't necessarily flickering at a synchronized rate, but it might sometimes get closer to that. Um, that might be what a seizure is. I don't know for sure, though. Um, sure, sure. So... So if you, it's hard to do this without visual examples, but if you look up, there is this thing called, uh, what is it called? It's called cymatics. So with cymatics, it's basically these pictures that they take where they, water is being, water or sand or sometimes other things like paint or different mediums, they'll vibrate it. Uh, with sound, like a specific tone, and they'll often change the tone, and that'll change the geometric uh, shapes that emerge on the surface right. of, like, sand or water, whatever it is. Right, the whole flower of life in the water trip, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, like, it totally creates those patterns, like, sacred geometry and all. Um, and if you actually take a strobe light, I often let link people to a video that flickers at like 16 hertz i think and if you look at that video even just pit it up to your face with your eyes closed or whatever uh you will actually start to see honeycomb patterns and stuff and right 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 so in terms of or what do you have a question or a statement or whatever no, uh no yeah i was it's it's just it's super interesting like the yeah the intersection of like well, you think about that, all that, but also the intersection of, of music festivals. And they're use, literally using sound frequencies to induce extra layer of hallucinatory activity uh, on brains already tripping that uh, are already having these disturbed situations to where it's inducing these, you know, very uh, regular mathematical geometric patterns and then there's also people whose job is to make those go even harder. 
right? So that that's just yeah. another that's a little interesting interstitch of of what's going on there. But yeah, keep going for sure. So I thought of an easy way to describe this. If you imagine uh, a pool of water, and if you if you create ripples in two different spots, they will intersect and create. Uh, grids, not even grids, it's like a spherical, circular grids or something. They create an interference pattern. And so mm-hmm. the idea here would be that your brain is rippling. Your vision is rippling at some frequency, perhaps normally. And I think uh-huh. there's certain processes that are geared towards preventing us from noticing that. Like, I think that there's, um, like, if you think of uh, visual trails, like, if you move your hand across your face and it leaves, like, a trail, a motion trail, um, I think that there's, that's because your brain has a process that is supposed to stop you from seeing separate frames, maybe, or, uh, I don't know about that, yes. but it's supposed to look, make it look like... It's supposed to gestalt it in some way, yeah. Yeah, to look like a continuous experience. And um, so I think a lot of drugs will interfere with those processes through what I think is basically glutamate mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I think that this is something that's still not necessarily confirmed, although I'm betting pretty hard on glutamate. I Basically, like what I've focused on is that there's two different really common glutamate receptors. There's AMPA receptors and NMDA receptors. And right. the NMDA receptor has a long effect and seems to be slower to activate. It It also requires that you activate AMPA before. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know AMPA, AMPA receptor agonists typically are some kind of nootropic or stimulant. Yeah, those are weird. Um, Ampakines. Yeah, they are. I don't know if you've have you ever tried them. I mean, uh, isn't Nuapept is associated with the Ampakine system, and so is Paracetam and all the rest, Tam. So, yeah, I, I think I have in that sense. Yes. Have you tried Coloracetam? That stuff is wild. Yeah, that uh, one. So the other ones you mentioned, like Paracetam and Nuapept, I think they barely are apokines, but coloracetam I think is stronger as an apokine. It seems to do something. It does something to vision on the order of nicotine, but uh, more pronouncedly in a very, like, very pronounced way, because nicotine enhances vision in a certain way, but the coloracetam or coloracetam is... uh, it does something to vision that's entirely unique in terms of my pharmacological library of experiences that is somewhere near yours, maybe not 95, but possibly. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that that one is unique. I mean, the visual yeah. tracking that you get across a fast-moving object, like a dog sprinting across <laughs> my yard, for instance, I'd never seen anything like that. It was... The lock-in is incredible. You feel like you're like, I mean, and, and this is a non-tolerant dosage. Like this is you dose it and you haven't previously dosed it. It's not like something you can keep inducing, 
but this visual state is remarkable. It's it's truly remarkable. You feel like you're like a gunner, you know, on a yeah, on some right. you know, you're flying through the air and you're like locked on to the other plane. Like that's what it feels like just watching a dog run around on Clarisidium Clarisidium like sub, sublingually. Um what does sublingually as probably 10, 10-ish milligrams, 5 to 10-ish, you know, like on the, barely on the, uh, you know, limit of detection of a standard milligram scale around there or less even. Uh, at one point I had made a clericetum uh, nasal spray to get it even closer to those neurons of interest, the, the neurons of interest and also the uh, blood vessels of interest, uh, get it very close to the eyes. Um, and that, that was remarkably effective down to the microgram range, like, uh, down to LSD ranges, clericetum was still very effective. Like it, it did stimulate, uh, my understanding of clericetum is that it's, it releases, it increases natural choline synthesis. Yeah. I was um, going to mention that, that when you mentioned nicotine, that, that is definitely another factor is that it totally does increase cholinergic activity too deeply deeply right yeah it's uh it's it's amplifying i i believe that it's amplifying both cholinergic synthesis and also there's some level of direct ampicine or or acetylcholine um activity there's some direct agonism at the same time that it's increasing the synthesis because it seems to just hit all the channels for for the uh at least for the visual effects it hits all of those acetylcholine channels just sharpening the sharpening of qualia um so it's it's truly incredible and i haven't experimented with it in actually a long period of time so it would be interesting to try in a very tolerant state again at some point um and maybe with some real uh it, it would be interesting to try in the context of something that requires actual high visual acuity like shooting or or other things um just to see if there's actually a market difference or it's if it's merely subjective yeah yeah like when i first uh tried coloracetam i did like maybe 10 or i think i've done doses of like 20 and maybe even as high as 50 but i don't know if i went that high i think it was pretty uncomfortable on certain doses though um but uh, first... yeah i could imagine going far beyond because i found it effective at such low levels that I, yeah the very large doses I saw people taking i was like that's interesting but a lot of people swallow it is the interesting thing too yeah i feel like it's much less effective that way but i don't know much less effective it, and it's similar to nicotine in that sense because if you get nicotine anywhere near the brain it has a markedly different feature than, say, if you just put a nicotine patch on your body or you swallow a nicotine tablet. It's it's nowhere close to the same experience as when you get it. The tissue interaction is somewhere very near the blood vessels of the brain. It's much more, co I mean, it's much more central. It's much more cognitive. It's uh, very, very near all that as opposed to orally. So I can only expect any other cholinergic mechanism drug to follow a similar pattern where you want to get it near the nerves you'd like to stimulate because it just starts stimulating nerves as soon as it enters uh, circulation. When I uh, first uh, consumed it, I 
I like I waited like 20 minutes or something, 15 minutes, maybe even less. And I was like walking into my living room and I saw my grandmother's face and I from far across the room I was like seeing details on her face that I don't ever usually see like it was very tiny things and every right. like, little movement like every eye twitch or whatever it is stuck out so much and it it felt so overwhelming or like when I looked at my ceiling it was like a popcorn ceiling at that time uh-huh. uh, it was like it was just like so much noise in my brain almost I don't know. It was, it was really oh, spooky. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and it, that it brings up an interesting thought for me of um, psychedelics. For me, do I do, do not too? get very extreme, like, external hallucinations. I, I, get a, I get an intense sharpening of qualia, similar to the sharpening of qualia under cholinergics. I get the, and then the, you know, the synergy of cholinergics plus uh, the serotonergics, the qualia in- increase is insane. I mean, it's it's hard to believe. Like you're seeing things in such high high resolution um, is my main experience. So I wonder, like, what kind of spillover into the acetylcholine system is there from serotonergics? I, and I really don't know. I haven't found much on that, but I I feel experientially and qualitatively that that's just obviously there in some sense of the super sharpening, like the, like say the come up, especially for something like LSD or mescaline, the come up is, is this super high fidelity experience before it gets highly hallucinogenic. Um, there's this like takeoff period where you're in like, you know, like visual hyperspace where like everything, you know, the crystalline hyper definition, maybe more characteristic of the phenethylamines. Um, but like what Shulgin was particularly obsessed with a bit was the sort of crystalline and, uh, reflective and, and hyper, uh, hyper defined aspect. And especially for Shulgin being a a chemist too, you know, and, and I'm including in Shulgin, you know, also the descriptions of his wife, uh, um, and Shulgin on the, uh, the qualitative aspects of vision. Yeah, the, you're going to love this. The 5-HT2A receptor, at least in the prefrontal cortex, it uh, it induces acetylcholine activity. So, awesome. so it's probably... Okay, yeah, I believe that for sure. Yeah, that makes good sense. And uh, this has been my experience as well, that uh, the psychedelics induce an intense visual clarity. And ha- Have you ever tried uniferan? I haven't. I think I've maybe heard your description of it, and I've I've been vaguely aware of it. But if I don't remember the specifics right now, what about you? Tried ketamine, right? Right, but uniferum is it, it's a cholinergic, or it's I, an I just forget the receptors. Apicine. Okay, yeah, I got you. Right. Okay. That one. I asked that one because that one I. Th- don't think it's cholinergic, uh, so it might be more representative of whatever amper receptors feel like, I guess. But they probably feel like everything. It's probably just amplification effects or something. Uh. Um, but if you notice on ketamine, there is like this distinct come down phase where you feel 
bouncy and more sensory. It's like you're in tune with your senses kind of a little bit. Right. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... Sure, it yeah, you're only, just a little looser, you know, you're kind of in the in the space with it. I feel like that effects is... So, so ketamine does have an amphicine-type metabolite or something. Um, I don't remember which metabolite it was, but I have a feeling that that phase, like the come down, where things are feeling more nice and bouncy, and it's like... I don't know. It's like a weird transitionary period, though. Uh-huh. I think that might be kind of like Ampa effects, maybe. I don't know, though. Yeah, for sure. But you were about to say something else uh, other than Unifarium. Hmm. So I've tried that. That one is... That one scares me, to be honest. <laughs> um... Yeah, truly. So did IDRA-21. Um, the effects that I get with Unifram, just to give an example. So the first time I mixed it with this thing called Citizine, which is basically like a nicotine-type drug. Uh, it's a partial agonist of uh, nicotinic receptors. Uh, they use it for like nicotine replacement therapy sometimes. But anyways, so I mixed it with that, and the first weird thing was that uh, it definitely amplified things and made everything more overwhelming, and Mm -hmm. it wasn't the same as Coloracetam. Like, it didn't do that. Like, Coloracetam definitely feels like a mixture between the cholinergic and Ampa effects. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, so the effects, I, it was like it was like my nervous system was just completely blasted. Like I went to go wash my hands, and when I reach out to, um, uh, when I reach out to get to like turn on the faucet, my hand just like smashes into the handle, and it like hurts uh, because I I, see. I like overshot somehow. And well, you know, acetylcholine is highly associated with with fast muscle contraction as well. Yeah, I, th- I bet, or I do, I've read that too. Right, and that's very interesting to me in the sense of cholinergics. I mean, they enhance, you know, they enhance a lot of things. They enhance uh, fine motor skills and, and absolute muscular output too, um, or just, I mean... It, they enhance reaction time and things like that of it's fast muscle. It's fast twitch. You know, it, yeah. the whole characteristic of cholinergic is fast, highly defined and fast. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then you like overload that. And yeah, I can see I, I've definitely experienced too. Like, oh, I grip, I went for that too hard. You know, like the, yeah. the faucet handle, I just went for it too hard. Yeah, and I felt, like, kind of light because it felt much easier to move. Like, I was reaching too far with everything, like, walking. I was, like, just uppity and weird. and um, So that only happened when I mixed them. Uh, then when I did it on its own, 
there was this time where I did it and then I went to Target. And at first it was like this. So, so the first state that I feel comes with the Avakine type things is that you feel in tune with everything and present and the internal thoughts are kind of quiet. And right. so that happened and I was just fine. And like, I usually don't think of anything and I just like do things. It's like, I feel like it forces you to be in your action mode network as we've mentioned at the beginning. Um, I could see uh, acetylcholine being highly associated with the action mode network for sure. I mean, driving as the ultimate example. I mean, nicotine's kind of the the driver's drug. Like, so you think of truck drivers. Uh, I mean, it's 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 the driving drug. You know, it's like America, yeah, right. right? It's the whole thing. Um. So then, after like an hour, and this has happened to me on anorazetam as well. But after an hour, well, it happened way different on Anorastam, though. It wasn't really, like, the same experience. But I kind of just lost it. I got really paranoid. I couldn't look anybody in the eyes. My vision got, like, stretchy and weird. Like, uh-huh. to where uh, it's really hard to describe. But uh, it's like if... I don't know. It's almost like you're not processing 3D vision the right way. Like things look like, like when you look at a parallax or you look at the way that an object distorts when you go around it. Like if you like circle around a car, if you pay attention to that experience, you'll notice you're observing the car change shapes, three-dimensional shapes, right? Yeah. Um, so, or even like a picture, like if you look at pictures on the wall, from an angle, it's it looks like it's not a square. It's more like a trapezoid. And so mm. it kind of makes everything look like that all of a sudden. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't like that, though. It's I've had that on weed as well. What uh, was the dosage there? Uh, this was probably like 10 milligrams or something. Yeah. And wait, this is... You never sorry, this is, you, Okay, yeah. 10 milligrams... Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I I think I saw some like train wreck reports of that one, and was like, yeah. I'm gonna steer clear of that one. And Sunifaram, that's the one that has the very much train wreck reports. Oh yes, that's the other. Yeah, right. I I kind of associated the former with the latter, and uh, I was like, oh my, these seem very intense. Yeah, when I first saw IDRA twenty one, which is kind of related. Um, right this guy these people ordered it and then one of the guys who's actually sadly dead now but he's he was isochroma reborn maybe some people actually might know him um he he was famous for taking nootropics and getting crazy effects and doing them in too high of doses and so so this chemical is seems to be active in the one to five milligram range and mm. he started taking 100 milligrams every single day. And the thing is, it also lasts three days. And it's crazy. Like, these oh people that ordered it, it was on longevity or longevity or whatever it's called. Uh-huh. They, they were talking about it. And then, like, two pages into their experiences, it, it just clearly devolved. Like, like, like isochroma went psychotic. This other girl who was taking them started like talking in poetry instead of 
like a normal person and it's on like a science form (laughs) and um right yeah and and, and everybody's like i mean it's (laughs) like these people are clearly in a very altered state from their normal you know yeah level and people have actually mentioned that things like coloracetam and idra especially and uh i haven't heard much about the sun frm and unifrm but uh, they do actually compare them to psychedelics, and one of the effects of one of the things that people think is behind the effects of psychedelics is the 5-HT2A receptor seems to disinhibit glutamate release. So, mm-hmm. so if you think of ketamine, this is blocking glutamate, but right. it's more complex. But, but for the sake of this, let's just say that. Uh, so that mm-hmm. numbs your body and makes you like really insensitive to your experience until you're like disappearing your embodied <laughs> physical experience right but serotonin kind of does the opposite where you're like very much in your body like whoa my body is my body and all this right yeah and so it could be like the opposite of anesthesia which i've used the word pro proesthesia which is like mm, yeah Interestingly, the word, the root word, actually means beauty, uh, like visual beauty or something like that. Uh huh. So it fits quite well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really. Um, so I, we totally didn't even talk about the, uh, the, so the point I meant to make when I brought up the two receptors is that. I think if you block... So when people block the NMDA receptor, uh, they sometimes experience flickering of their mm-hmm. vision and whatever. Like everything, they call it strobing. Everything looks like you're Going watching... Going back to the DXM FAQ and all that. Yeah, 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 totally. They also call it flanging. And basically it looks like you're in a stop-motion film, which is kind of freaky. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. so it's possible, like I basically argued that maybe the continuity of experience is mediated by this NMDA receptor that it's long lasting effects help to bridge the gaps between, uh, neuron firing in a way that it doesn't allow for, a breakage of your experience so that it's not flickering like that, basically. Whereas the amp right. receptor might totally allow this because it has only a like a one to five millisecond uh, firing uh, span right. or whatever. Yeah, it's a very low hertz. Yeah, or it's a yeah, it's a right. It's in there. Um, yeah, it's it's super interesting with that. Um, so we we moved on a little bit from from hallucination. I think we diverged off from hallucination. Um, maybe we could get back to. Uh, I know before we've talked about something called perceptual autocorrect um, is a a general meme that you've promulgated. Uh, could you maybe talk about how that happens? You know, in the context of psychedelic hallucination. Totally. Yeah. So. I kind of feel the, let me think how to start this. So the idea of perceptual autocorrect, that idea that we mentioned way back 
when the podcast started, this idea that we're all stuck on these scripts. Um, I argue that this applies to our vision as well, and that this is why we experience optical illusions. So right. This, one of, this is the really beautiful thing. Everybody listen close to this stuff, because this is really cool. I hope so. <laughs> um, so. So basically, people with schizophrenia seem to sometimes not experience certain optical illusions. Quite a lot of them, as far as I can tell. Um, one of them is this inverted face mask that people often use. Uh, it's basically, if you look at this rotating mask, uh, when it is facing away from you and you look at the inside, the hollow side of the mask, it, it will give you the illusion that that you are staring into a mask that's actually facing you. And the idea is that you don't ever experience hollow masks in reality on a daily basis or anything. You, you experience... Yeah people's faces always pointing towards you and so much that our brain can kind of just skip past checking whether or not that's the case instead we uh we just kind of use like a autofill to assume that that's the case of what we're looking at and right this tendency for schizophrenics has also been observed uh with like the ebbinghaus illusion and interestingly, it's been observed to to disappear. The these illusions disappear on cannabis and dissociatives, as far as we can tell. Interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so, I've basically argued that the NMDA receptor is part of this memory system that is guiding our scripted experiences of perception. And so, so I called it a perceptual. The reason it should be called, I think, a perceptual autocorrect is that's really what it is. Like we see the illusions, it's kind of the same as if you you type something and then your autocorrect pits the wrong thing there because it's predicting you to say that, but it's actually wrong. Right. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's the perfect metaphor. And um, so with these illusions, I don't know what I think yet about psychedelics. It might d depend on the state, because I feel like some of the effects are actually an enhancement of illusions like this. Um, right. But it might change throughout... Like, there might be peaks and valleys where it's, like, fluctuating between a lack of illusions and more of them. What I've, what I've yeah. noticed... Here's an interesting aside, is that, like, in terms of a lack of illusions and more of them, is that I believe that there's some correlation between visual acuity and external hallucinatory content. Because, like, in early experiences, like, early 20s, like, tripping with my girlfriend on mescaline, like, I have, like, I'm razor sharp looking at everything around me. Like, the, the universe still exists in the configuration it did before. Like, things look brilliant and shining and, like, hyper-defined. But I'm not seeing cascading incredible differences. But my girlfriend required glasses to see. And 
her vision was very poor, and she had massive external hallucinations on the same dose of mescaline, um, just extremely massive. And she, you know, putting on the glasses and taking them off, it was taking them off was this ultra accentuation of hallucinogenesis. Like the external world turned into just absolutely ridiculous things, absolutely ridiculous things. So I think there's some connection and correlation between uh, how well your eyes work just normally and how much you're going to see things crazy. Yeah, I could see that being the case. Um, what I've noticed... Um, oh no, I think I lost lost it. Um, well, we were talking about the mask illusion. Sorry, before I put the aside in, we were talking about perceptual autocorrect. Oh, I remember. So something that I've noticed in my experiences on... Like, in states where I think my illusions might be decreasing is, um, so, okay, so I used to take stimulants for ADHD, and after so long, I would experience psychotic-like effects, and during those states, I basically was left with, um, body dysmorphia, and I would notice every little detail in my skin, and everything looked ugly, but then, on the other hand, what people experience sometimes on like psilocybin or MDMA, and myself included, I've, you can experience everybody looks beautiful and symmetrical, and uh, everything looks more like it's under some beautiful Instagram filter. And so, I think that I think that there's in the brain. I think there's kind of these beauty filters that actually are going a lot of the time like i think we learn people's faces and turn them into something like symbols and to yes familiar kind of simplistic cartoony versions that are yes pretty. absolutely that's that's like yeah instagram that's exactly what you just described is these like symbol fascia that you put over the surface of something like yeah. fascia, like the you know the little bit of wood that you put over the surface. Like it's these things that are highly, highly reductive, highly condensing of fidelity. Like there's real fidelity, like you saw in your grandmother's face on Clericetum. Like there's that fidelity, and then there's the hyper-defined, super aesthetic fidelity of Instagram, and it's a completely different thing. They're both highly defined. They're both high fidelity, but one is like what could almost be termed true high fidelity. And the other one is this artificial high fidelity. What if, what if the reason that the psychedelic fidelity feels so crazy? Like, okay. So something I noticed when I had LSD is that in the water of this pond I was at, when it would ripple, I would be able to see where all of the waves intersect despite how chaotic it should have been like normally i process it more like this just chaotic waves like not waves in the sense of round circles right but like like i just see like it's like as if the surface was random mountains or something right like you see that you're just looking at chaos yeah. you're looking at that and you're like i can't actually cognize that 
Yeah, but somehow on LSD, though, I can. And so what if by turning everything into these hyper-simplistic, abstracted, symmetrical things, it actually makes room for you to be expansively aware and fill more things into your awareness than before, because now everything that's being filled in there is, like, more trackable, more simple, so that, like, if you can only fit, like, 30 things into your frame of awareness, and you, like, say, like, someone's face is hyper-detailed, and that completely overwhelms you with all 30 of those spaces, uh, uh -huh. versus if that person's face just becomes, like, two pixels or something right and then right. you can like become aware of like like uh 15 faces all at once or something crazy yeah so, i mean i think it goes back to like default mode network suppression and just how many goddamn you like resources neural resources are being used up by like this sort of rumination function of the default mode network and like when you free that up the sensory apparatus how incredibly good they are like the quality of actually coming through is so incredibly high definition compared to what we normally experience because so many neural resources are involved in being who we are, sort of, you know? Totally. That's totally what I've... Like in one of my reports that I did after taking shrooms, that's pretty much what I wrote, except just not in those terms. Like I mm. noticed that it was as if my mind finally stopped and then I just started slipping into my perception like so yeah. fully that it was like I was so deeply yeah. yeah immersed into a film and then once I got to a certain point it was like my senses all unified into this kind of cohesive uh thing like I, it felt like this crazy yeah. 3d movie you know and yeah yeah and absolutely yeah i bet children are like that all the time because they just like they probably need to be in order to learn about the world but also they probably haven't developed uh, strategies of i guess zoning out right or something not i don't know about zoning out but of course yeah it's again it goes back to neural resources and sort of the zero-sum game of processing the world like you know the more you pay attention to x and we use attention to mean this this you know network of neurological resources all sort of m moving in coherence with other parts of it um it's like it's just a question of like how much energy do you have to expend on X? I mean, it always comes down to that. So, like, you're always sharing resources across something else, no matter what your brain is doing, when, no matter what experience is being generated, when, no matter what simulation you're running that you're experiencing. Like, it comes down to how much of the neural whole thing is cohered on one percept or one, you know, one qualia or one thought or it's concentration, right? And it goes back to meditation as well. It's it's how much of the whole neurological edifice is actually working on a singular moment, you know, subjectively. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me of... So when I used to do cannabis, I the thing that I felt 
might be happening with some of the ways that I both would experience an increase of kind of creative thinking, but also delusional thinking, is that uh-huh. it seemed like, well, not just delusional, it's not the right word, it, scrambled thinking, um, sure. or losing track of my thoughts. I feel, I feel that normally when we're a kid, we have like some kind of capacity for what we can be w- aware of at any one time. And then right. as we become an adult, we learn to just completely habituate the way that we use those kind of awareness muscles in our brain like we're used to keeping a background check of how much time is passing and keeping a background check of what is going on around us or where we are at the moment running so many subroutines at the same time it's just like a computer you go into the processes and there's like all these bloated processes happening just tracking things it's the same thing in a human brain and i used to like think so i noticed some of the effects were that I could lose track of where I was, and then when I interpret, when I look at the world around me, I would look at cues like, say, palm trees or certain things, and I would think of what is associated, what kind of environments are associated with that, rather than being, rather than remembering where I was. So, like, the palm trees might stimulate the idea that I'm near a beach or something like that. Right. And I feel like a lot of that would happen. I would see everything around me. I would see it. I would more fully be observing it, trying to kind of figure out where I was in a sense. But I also was like, if I really tried, I'd probably be able to ruin that effect by reminding myself constantly where I'm at or something. Yeah. And, um, another thing is this, this tendency of like kind of run on uh, ideas in the head where Mm. I feel that normally we are kind of conditioned to be aware of the limits of our uh, how far we can take an idea before we forget what we're saying or something like that and on cannabis though I noticed I would I would go on and on and I would actually start to like derail from what I was originally saying. I would lose track of things and it would get incoherent sometimes or sometimes my mind would be racing with those kind of thoughts to where I couldn't even stop to speak. And I feel like the way that that works, it might be that it's taking away the conditioning and kind of making you forget the way that you were trained to use your mind. It's almost like becoming... uh, suddenly uncivilized or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely right. But not in a necessarily bad way, but you are no longer maybe brainwashed by society too. <laughs> but Right. You have a temporary relief of all sort of uh, conceptual illusions because you just can't form concepts. Do you... So I haven't done a crazy high amounts of psychedelics, but from my experience so far, and I have tripped, I've recently had like visuals of like colors were changing and I was getting emotional and crazy. But the thing Mm -hmm. is I don't experience these kind of weed effects though. Like this stuff that I'm describing, some of it was there. Like the unfamiliarity of the world was kind of there, but it, it still wasn't the same. Uh huh. 
but but I'm curious what you think. Like, do you feel that like high doses of something like psilocybin does it? Do you think it just completely mimics weed, or what do you think of that? I mean, I think the very high end of weed is considerably different than the very high end of psychedelics. The very high end of psychedelics can end up in similar crazy domains, but it's really the, I mean, the confluence of the two is where you get the craziest domains, like the craziest domains of qualia that exists. I mean, not, you know, of, you know, salvia notwithstanding, but there's like some very weird things, very weird places that happen under the influence of both at the high end. Um, and it depends on, you know, there's, it depends on many things, but, uh, but I would say that there's, there is a confluence maybe at the bo- super high end of both to where they can induce, uh, some, some psychotic like responses for sure. Um, just being on heavy doses of DMT and weed at the same moment. Like if you use weed as a substrate to melt the DMT into, I mean, that's, it's a great place. It's a great place. But some people get really, it becomes very weird. And I've also experienced that. It gets very weird to, you know, you go that hard at the same time. And, and then there's also like being on a normal, longer acting psychedelic. And then at some point invoking THC and you have extraordinary shattering effect. I remember one particular time with mescaline. It was, I don't know, four or five hours of mescaline. Then I smoked weed and looked out at something and in the sun. And it was this unbelievable shattering effect. And there was this unity effect and this like transcendence effect, but also this sort of grating madness. Uh, I don't know, some sort of aversive energy undercurrent. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they, they definitely interact. And I mean, of course, you know, ultimately psychedelic induced psychosis would be slightly ultimately different than THC psychosis. Um, couldn't necessarily speak much on like what's happening on the receptor level with that, but I wouldn't be surprised that there's some, sort of confluence of dynorphin happening either. So THC totally does induce dynorphin activity. Um, so one of the experiences I've had with THC that I, that was really interesting is I took some and I was in like Hollywood or something, I don't know. And I just completely didn't know where I was anymore. Like, I ba- basically, I was really, really high. And then I left the restaurant where everyone else was because, well, there was one person there that was against this, I could tell. And, like, she was doing very stigmatizing things. But, um, so I just was like, okay, I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. And... When I did, I, like, tried to go back to where my car was, but everything looked like just a foreign universe. Like, even the way the buildings looked, it was like, it was like, I've never seen houses like this, what the hell. 
<laughs> it's like, and everything looks so prominently 3D and depth-ish. It was like, yeah. like the walls of the buildings, it almost felt like cave-like or like, like I'm looking at these like stone built structures and like I didn't have the normal sense of, like, I don't know. I think it kind of like strips away a lot of the habituated sense of the way that I'm viewing these common symbolic things in my life, like street lights and stop signs and right. cars and all that. You start parsing it in all these different conceptual ways, just the simple thing you see every day. Yeah. And I've not even gotten that effect from psychedelics yet. Like, I've had arguably similar stuff, but so far it feels more like as if as if things can look different like that sometimes but i'm still having access of my awareness of things and i don't feel like on weed i feel like i lose my memory and like in those moments i was actually scared that i might get legitimately lost trying to like find my way like i was literally walking and just like like it just felt like this is some other universe or something. I don't know. What if I just never make my way out of this? Yeah. And I end up like in, in, I don't know, like in some creepy alley somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah. I um, just, I just can't ever, I, I'll never be able to direct properly again. Yeah. The confusion, the location confusion with weed can be very distressing. Do you feel like it's like? Do you feel like some of those effects are more intense with weed than with like psilocybin or something? Absolutely, absolutely, I would say so. Because like, for instance, like if I was on a small amount of psychedelics and I had to like ride a a bike, you know, like like a bike on a road with cars and shit, or drive, I would take psilocybin or interact with cops, for instance. I would much rather be on a little bit of psilocybin than like a, a low or medium or high amount of THC because there's just a stultification. I believe it may have some sort of anticholinergic effect because I used to get like mute on THC. Like I'd be oh, me too. just suddenly like I have to go meditate in the corner and just like nod at people. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Like it would, it like that where I just literally couldn't talk and then if I ever smoked a cigarette in that state suddenly I could talk again so that's what makes me think that's it's fascinating anticholinergic suddenly I could talk and I could talk like well and I was like oh this is interesting I had a lot of things I was thinking about but I literally couldn't make it language e. it just didn't happen it just stopped the language machine stopped in some weird way that happened to me but too early on with THC too. That was like the first really high doses in a social setting. Um, that's not nearly of a same like magnitude of a perceptual thing anymore, but, but it's still like a kind of real event. I mean, everybody See, I experiences feel... language slowing down a little bit. I feel like that's kind of characteristic to me. It seems like THC's effects so much of them, like how it turns off your language, I feel like it, it can do that with a lot of things. Like, I feel like it can do that with uh, 
like I remember times where I felt like I couldn't walk anymore. Like I, I was aware of my senses of walking, but it was such the weirdest thing that like, like I would literally like fall over because I don't know what I'm doing anymore. So like, it feels like I went from, from autopilot and knowing how to do it to suddenly like fully conscious walking. And then I'm like, every step is like really awkward and, I, I don't know, but, but yeah. I feel like it does it to that. It's done it to, like, when I had the place disorientation, uh, I feel like that's, like, a similar... Like, I would call these things an agnosias, but it's really weird. Um, I don't know. Like, I feel like, like the loss of illusions that we mentioned, I feel like that is in a sense, the same thing. And I feel like what psychedelics do is more soft, but at the same time, that doesn't mean anything about it being less intense necessarily. But I feel Mm. like there's something about psychedelics where it's like, like I can feel like this place is unfamiliar, but I know exactly how I would get back to where I came from. Right. It doesn't disturb some sort of actual body capacity in some way. They disturb your default no- mode network, but like that, it, you're like, uh, that's kind of okay. That's kind of okay. You know, like yeah. you're, you're kind of fine with it. If say, if you're just wandering around the woods and you take psychedelics, you're not going to be that worried about where you're going to end up going. But if you smoke some weed with it, you might be like, Oh man, do I know where I'm going? Cause there's some kind of certain, because I mean, weed, it's endocannabinoids. It's kind of like, it's kind of just making you a little drowsy slightly. So like if you're trying to explore or you're trying to like figure things out or make a map in your head, being a little bit drowsy is not what you want, but that's what it does. Yeah, totally. And like, I've had times where I peeked on weed and I thought, that when I saw helicopters, I felt that they were after me and stuff like that too. <laughs> it only happens. Oh no! Yeah, seriously, it only happens for like two seconds. But still, it's 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 really weird. It's a perceivable moment in those. Yeah. Um. Hmm. So yeah, I resonate with what you said about like going into the forest because I because I basically that's where I do the shroom. So, but with yeah. weed, I mean, I would want to do it too. I'd actually be okay with the idea of getting lost a little bit, but but at the same See, what time, what I do with weed in the forest is like I'll just like lie down somewhere in the sun and then make the weed obliteration happen, and nothing bad happens, and it's okay to be obliterated, like. You're just in a quiet spot in the sun, and then you're obliterated for some period of time, but you know it doesn't matter, because you're fine. Yeah. You're just sitting there in the sun, you know, you're fine. And that's always nice. Like, that's that's a way to... Because it's a real weird thing of, like, doing a weed trip from start to finish without that weird feeling creeping in. You know, when you're really high, and yeah. you want to go the whole time without the, the weird feeling creeping in, it's like, you got to really control parameters like set and setting like but really good to and but there is like a real benefit if you can get that full sort of thc relaxation kind of you know drowsiness feeling through you without uh it turning into stress and like discomfort do you know in animals they they made it so that the animals don't have 
dinorphin. They don't produce dinorphin at all. And right. the mice the stop getting anxious. They just don't express dinorphin receptors. Yeah, when they give those mice THC, uh, they don't freak out on it. They don't get aversive or whatever. Uh-huh. So it's kind of interesting. I feel like... Okay, yeah. I feel that THC could be like this... It feels like it's like a mix of so many different things, but I feel like one of them is something like salvia. Like when I did salvia, I feel like there's a resemblance, except that salvia feels like it pushes so much further down in that direction. You know, that's interesting, because now that you mention that, that's actually definitely qualitatively true. I've never really made that connection as much. I know, like, they're somewhere in the same sphere of association, but, like, actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the weird ends of weed are a lot like the the beginning weird ends of salvia, of just sort of, like, place loss. What I noticed, when you mentioned, uh, so, so the ways that I've felt that salvia is similar to cannabis is also in that way that you mentioned, like, going mute. I've noticed mm-hmm. that seems to be, like, on salvia, I've experienced that, and I've had, like, really similar experiences in that regard. Um, right. Yeah, d- absolutely. So, um... Hmm. What next? Um, so, I mean, yeah, in the vein of that, like, yeah, salvia definitely mutants, mutes, mutes you very hard. Like, I mean, you're so muted that you start freaking out, basically. Like, it, it just crushes you with that, that weird feeling of, like, I can't actually do anything about the situation, but what if I... What if it's a bad situation? Because it's like you're being conscious while inducing this drowsiness. Like you're completely aware under high THC or high salvia. Like you're completely aware. You're like definitely there, but like you can't do almost anything about what's happening to you right now. Like you can't do anything to it. So it's like this training and like, well, I can't do anything about it and just chill. Um, but there's this overwhelming like weirdness that you really rebel against and just because you're like trying to be an alert animal while you're under like sort of anesthetics and you're trying to function like that if you're trying to go about the world and and not on salvia probably but like on weed like you're just trying to operate in that and it's like constantly stressful it seems to constantly tilt at dynorphiny yeah i Hmm, THC is such an interesting one. I feel like, honestly, I've had the most weird, interesting experiences on THC so far. Probably partly because I've done it more than probably a lot of the others. But, right. I don't know. It's like, I don't know, just the range of weird effects that can happen is seems crazy. And I don't think everyone gets a lot of crazy effects from it though but they probably can like maybe if they just did a lot of it i don't know hmm. yeah really i feel like most people have had the really high dose thc experience most young people have young. had the like full-blown weird thing yeah that's pretty much what drew me to continue to use it because it was so strange and i don't know it 
showed me ways of seeing the world very differently, yet it was oh, socially acceptable, I guess, to use it a bunch. Be so. <laughs> weird in this way of like, I just did this drug, so I'm weird in this way, and everybody's like, oh man, you're stoned. Yep, yeah. And you just have this freedom to be weird because of drug and social context of drug. You're like, okay, I'm free to be weird in this space in my particular ways that I'm processing this thing. Yeah. Gives a lot more leeway than doing something really bizarre, right? <laughs> yeah, you couldn't, like, uh, chill and do salvia really right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that one yeah. channel on YouTube where he's like gardening and doing salvia or whatever, and he just like sits there. Uh, yeah, did you see the the Hamilton Morris like interviewed that guy? Yeah, right. Yeah, and he like forgave or he asked for forgiveness from Salvia. Yeah, he pleaded <laughs> with Mother Salvia. Yeah, it was, it was gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, so I think we left off a little bit on the. Uh, Mask illusion, I have in the notes, like, mask illusion as a property of, like, neural object templates and uh, and how that correlates to the uh, schizophrenic immunity. Um, maybe we could jump back into that, but it is approaching, like, three hours, so we might, you know... I have a couple other things, but it might be wrap-up, shortish. Yeah, that sounds good. Um... So the mask illusion, um, so I think that is a form of the perceptual autocorrect, right? And seems mm -hmm. to depend on, maybe depend on NMDA receptors, which are studied in memory and learning mm -hmm. and taking things that block those induce amnesia. So... Mm -hmm. I've, oh yeah, I guess I guess I should bring up this idea of cognitive atomization. So this idea mm, yeah. is basically that we let me think. So we you could imagine that if you were to strip away the layers of your perception, there's like a kind of hierarchy that's going on and mm -hmm. that it might be a dose-dependent one in the case of things like dissociatives, like ketamine and NMDA receptor-blocking drugs. And so, in the early stages, you might uh, first see the illusions go away. And this might actually be, in some sense, giving you more clarity about somewhat more accurate representations of the world. And... Like in the case of the illusions, people accurately perceive what's going on there, and then the as physical you reality, they actually see, they're actually processing that more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, and then if you keep stripping away, you might begin to notice that that perhaps everything is an illusion. That at least perceptually, that objects aren't really things that exist necessarily. Well. This is getting like like I'm kind of twisting it into philosophy right there, so I'll back away sure, for a second. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, in the perceptual sense, it is you, you might stop seeing objects as being confined as objects. You might 
not see a car as a singular thing. It might be... You won't have to just all, yeah. Yeah, it'll be like a series of pixels, a series of sub-object Lines and tubes and, yeah. like, curves. Yeah. And then you could imagine that you keep going in that direction until everything is essentially atomized. And so, like, that's where this idea of atomization occurs. And uh, it's basically just the idea that you can kind of dissolve backwards all the things that, all your representations of the world and all your cognitive tendencies. And, like, you might not understand words anymore. You might not... Uh, everything will look strange and unfamiliar. Everything can be incomprehensible. And so there's, like, something called visual agnosia, where people with certain kinds of brain damage will uh, not be able to recognize objects anymore. Like, And if you ask them to draw the object, they completely draw something super strange. Like, they do not draw that thing. And Right. Um, like, uh, if you check out the post, if you search, if you search, I don't know, or maybe I'll give you a link. It's like, because uh, it's not called cognitive atomization, it's called desummation on my site. There's like, there's pictures of people with agnosia doing drawings. And the weirdest thing about this is that their drawings have consistencies with the the supposed real world representations that everyone shares like so they draw letters like a b c d or whatever and you can notice that certain lines that they do uh like you see the letter a and the way that the agnostic person draws it it's like i think it's like two disconnected lines like it's the number 11 or something and then like a third mm. small little curved line or a circle or oh. something and you begin to notice that, like, like other numbers, like, so, so, like, the number four, I think, also shares two lines, and it's, like, four does have resemblance to A, and you could even, like, when people do, like, numbers, like, leet code or whatever, they'll replace, uh. like, A with four, so it's, like, there's this spooky connection of, like, you see that they're still tracking something, but somehow it completely is non-representational compared to what we are familiar with. So there's like with. consensus among agnostics, like of like they have a consensus reality of like differential like representation of four, for instance. Uh, I don't know if it's a consensus among other people with brain damage, but they among within the person that was tested in that example there was consistencies mm -hmm. all throughout. And I, I basically, in the image, I highlighted, I, I color-coded all the consistent patterns and then uh -huh. wrote like a paragraph explaining why they're kind of similar. Like you notice there's like similars in wherever there's lines or circles or closed objects or open objects and stuff like that, basically. Uh -huh. and, uh, right. It's kind of spooky though. And so, like, basically, I would say that the loss of optical illusions might be the very beginnings of visual agnosia. And if you were to keep going and going and going, you would reach a state similar to 
people that actually have visual agnosia and you might see the world in some way that tracks it's not like you're just simply seeing nothing right you're seeing something that might correlate to what is coming into your eyes but you're not piecing it together in the way that represents the familiar view of the world yeah you're not able to cohere it in the useful way right? yeah yeah it's it's super interesting to me and the, the whole concept that it's like there are it, it there's a huge resonance with that and the ai algorithms that just make thing you know visual things totally, happen yeah it's this deep level of like, oh my God, it's just about to cohere because it's like the agnosic level right yeah, now. Right. It's very close to being the fully, fully nosic level or whatever, you know, the nosic level. Yeah, it's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I like that comparison of AI to uh, like, I guess, tripping or something or big nausea yeah. and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean the so the concept with the mask illusion as a uh, it's like a, a property of like this neural object template, and then like when you're when you're tripping, you're or you're schizophrenic or whatever. I, well, actually, I don't know. Is is tripping associated with mask illusion uh, immunity in any way? I don't know. I only know that it is the case for um, dissociatives and um, the other one, uh, THC. So, like what THC, I right. what I think might be the case if if psychedelics do do this, because I feel like like what if we engage in the autocorrect kind of template processing depending on how much uh we are capable of processing like how much room we have to dictates perhaps how how much we rely on these illusions and stuff like that and yeah. so i could imagine that increasing the idea of like increasing consciousness which might be a cheesy thing to think about, but uh, people always say this with psychedelics. The idea, it might be like as if you are uh, getting more allowance to have a higher acuity of things, and that mm -hmm. might resolve certain illusions. Like you might stop experiencing them because you're not relying uh, on shortcuts as much. You're like enhancing, I guess. I don't know. But right, right, like, yeah. You're like fully processing, like you're the actual sensate. Like you're forced to fully process it because you actually don't have access to the 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 templates you're normally you normally have access to. That the algorithms that you've learned that allow shortcuts of visual processing or shortcuts of thinking or what have you, right? Yeah, I think psychedelics are a weird case because it's like certain parts of it seem to be an enhancement of some illusions, like the, the way that things ripple and um, 
breathe. I there there's certain illusions that are that, but they haven't been tested on schizophrenics or under the other drug conditions. But I would be really curious to see if if that illusion gets blocked, because then I would wonder if the distortions on psychedelics could be almost in a sense the opposite direction, like just giving you so right. many illusions that it's it's just crazy. Like maybe you're like maybe you so how we see a face that whole inverted face i feel like what happens is we're basically only looking at a little bit of what's there and then we're like yep that's a face but imagine if you you started like ramping up how quickly you start making those judgments or like how sensitive you are to assuming things perhaps you would start to see like faces where there aren't or uh right all that stuff you know yeah definitely So, like, maybe let's finish with, uh, I have, like, the Phoenix Effect, like, is basically hyper-neuroplasticity, right? This is, like, childlike levels neuroplasticity, but we've talked before about, like, what can happen if you're too neuroplastic? Like, could you maybe describe, like, the limitations and potential negative effects of, like, too much neuroplasticity or too much neurogenesis or like what happens if you push those buttons too hard okay so this is totally theoretical at this point just a warning it's based on assuming that certain things about the theory are true or something like that um mm -hmm. okay so one of the ideas that idea about synaptogenesis so there is mm -hmm. some research showing that people who have undergone less synaptic pruning so one they have synesthesia more often or no that people with synesthesia have less pruning and mm -hmm. uh, more connectedness in the brain and mm -hmm. also people with autism that's where it's a little bit weirder um mm -hmm. and then like dendritic spines which is like uh like the ends of neurons have dendrites which is kind of like the branches on which synapses are on uh so there is dendritogenic effects of psychedelics too uh i uh, think i need uh, there was one study that mentions it I don't, I don't know how much research has been on all of them but but so if if it's true that it increases this, there there's some research showing that low intelligence or like cognitive problems are associated with higher dendritic dense density, like dendritic arborization, which basically uh, is like more branching out. But right, the it thing, turns into like a dense camp canopy of of dendrites and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't necessarily believe that this is a problem. I actually think it could be the opposite that's true, that it might have cognitive enhancing effects. But the thing about this, so I think that people, the reason that I think that there's this association with increased dendritic arborization with lower uh, learning ability, I think it's because learning is about pruning away things and having a more refined uh 
brain, basically, right? Like, you learn what is the mm-hmm. right answer, and then you start tossing out all the wrong things. So I think it might not be that having more branches is bad, necessarily. I think it actually depends, but but someone who fails to learn might just never prune away their connections. They might just mm-hmm. they might just stay like that. So, so I'm not right. sure if it makes you dumber if you do psychedelics, but it's also possible that you're literally reversing learning and that that's why you could people... that you could perpetually reverse learning across your entire life. Yeah, maybe. You mean like Hey, are you still there? And you know, did it continuously is the Discord call? Oh, uh, I think I I think my computer might have I hope it continued to record that. Holy crap. There was a cutout. So, do you think you could say what he said? I don't know if I got cut off, but Let's see. Um Yeah, where were we just at? Um Well, basically uh, I just said dendritic arborization. Yeah, so the benefits of using psychedelics, they might also be potentially spooky things. Like, imagine that, like, you, you could view addiction, trauma, uh, mm. and fixated ideas as things that you learned, and that if psychedelics work by reversing the learning process, by reversing synaptic pruning, then I feel like that can lead to spooky consequences, potentially. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, you really think about it, like, you could keep yourself in some kind of state of mental adolescence, of just sheer openness, and Robert Anton Wilson talked about that as, like, a bliss ninnies was his term for that, of people who are just, like, so open to everything, no matter what it is, just cool, cool, new thing, wow, great. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that's a side effect of taking too much of the psychedelics? I think it can be. I think if you try and stay, I mean, I think that's the consequence of sort of, of trying to be in that state all the time without like actually giving your brain time to process it and integrate it and do all the things. And, you know, like a lot of them say like 10 times a year or something, right? You know, there's Shulgans that were a lot more than that, of course, but there's, you know, it, it doesn't need to be super constant right? You're a peculiar person if you can manage that in your life. What if, what if psychedelics don't necessarily induce any particular effect or state, but what if they just make it so you can basically reach any state of mind, basically? What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Like, what if it doesn't induce psychosis, doesn't, it isn't anti-psychotic, it isn't happy, sad, it's just anything. Yeah, it's a sort of, uh, you know, any, it's a sort of malleable template for any kind of neural experience you could have is like this sort of like, if there's a way to induce malleability, it seems this. And yeah, I mean, really anything neuroplastic could do it, but it just does it in this really finesse kind of way. Yeah, hmm. I'm not sure about it yet, but I think it's possible that it is the case. Should we should we end it here, or what should we do? 
Yeah, I think we could. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, don't don't end on the bad note of like, oh, it's it's spooky to <laughs> do too much neurogenesis, but like, most people definitely need more neurogenesis than they're getting. What if neurogenesis causes good. cancer? I'm just kidding. <laughs> enough, enough. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a total proponent of these things. So just to put that out there. No doubt, of course. Yeah, we wouldn't have just talked for three hours about it if we weren't. But <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. This has been really good. I'm, I'm excited. I think this was a great convo. I think we got got a lot of good good notions out there. Yeah, this was good. Thank you for the conversation. Yeah, man. Anytime. Oh, so cool. Um, huh? So I'll upload this on mine as well. If you have a link to where yours will be, I will put that in the description or something like that. Sure, yeah, don't worry about it for right now. I'm going to, like, um, do some YouTube stuff with it or, like, you know, get some cool fractals going for it and maybe even, like, links to stuff that you're talking about at certain points, like, have the link to it. Uh, like, you know, be a little, zoot, hey, click on this if you want to know what he's talking about or, like, put images where something that you're talking about is that stuff can be really fun on youtube yeah definitely um so i appreciate what you're doing on this project i think you're going to be a very good host um and i guess that is it what a long podcast holy crap okay so i know that was great dude yeah yeah (laughs)